Hear you nothing that I say. Master Retail Limited is one thing. This is totally different. No, no different. Only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned. Alright, I'll give it a try. No. Try not. Do. Or do not. There is no try. Well, I jinx it, but I feel like I'm getting pretty good at this uh, in terms of recording with guests, so we'll see how it goes. Well, with that, then, we can just break right into the episode and welcome all of our listeners to another installment of Lucky Paper Radio. I had to say installment because I already said episode. You can't say episode twice in the same sentence. My name is Andy, <laughs> and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Anthony, currently forcing mono-white Maddox. That's the way to do it in a rotisserie draft. You just gotta you gotta stake your claim and stick to it, and don't let anybody step on you or any four other people <laughs> step on you because there are four other drafters in white. You know, I've gotten maybe a little bit too invested in past roto drafts. I'm 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 trying to balance my emotional <laughs> just, involvement just in this one. <laughs> See, me, all the fun is getting to scream and call your friends names when it's they true. take your cards. It is. It's absolutely true. We're recording yeah. this in the middle of like I don't know, pick twenty four, and I'm saying on air right now. That Parker, you better not take Thalia and the Gitrog monster in this next round. If you do, I'm coming for you. Just saying it right now. So it's on it's on record. Um, yeah, you're just forcing white. And honestly, it seems like it's going to work just fine, despite the fact that, again, there are four other players that are drafting white cards. They're not drafting a ton of white cards, though, are they? Maybe I should be paying more attention here. I don't have many, but there's a, a very clear like blue-white control player who has quite a few white cards. And then there's like a Jeskai Spells player and a black-white Lurus player that's splashing for Croxa. This draft is going kind of weird. I'm not going to lie. Going, you know what? It's good, cool to see people exploring different space, but... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I was looking at it, and I was like, man, Anthony's deck surely is going to have to be bad. And I was looking at the white cards that are left, and I'm like, no, it's actually going to be totally fine. It's going to be plenty of space. Yeah. It's going to be no problem. So white is pretty deep, I guess. Feedback taken. Uh, it's not a coincidence we're talking about you forcing Anthony in our latest rotisserie draft, because this episode is a very special one. We are joined by special guest Ryan Jedi Master Sachs to discuss just that forcing. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, everybody. Are you a Star Wars guy? I mean, there are a lot of different flavors that go to real extremes of that i like star wars but i feel like star wars guy is not a title i've earned okay you don't identify as a star wars guy that's fully up to you you don't have to earn it you just get to decide if you want to be a star (laughs) wars guy no i think i'm i think i'm good star wars is pretty cool but i wouldn't identify as a star wars guy well we're glad to have you back on the show you are one of our favorite guests and your episodes are always some of our listeners favorites i expect this week will be no different we're taking a bit of a step away from talking about cube design though it might come up a little bit and mostly tonight we're actually talking about cube from perspective of a player because you have a theory of of drafting that you have recorded a lengthy podcast about which we'll link in the show notes it's a episode of limited level ups and there's also a article that kind of is table setting for that which is your from picks to paths article all these things are things that i highly recommend people read and listen to regardless of how invested you are in this episode because they're just great instructive pieces of material But that's going to kind of, I think, set the table a little bit for the conversation we're going to have tonight, which is all about your concept of forcing and really your defense, I think, of forcing in limited magic. Yeah. Yeah. I think forcing gets a bad rap Uh, and it gets a bad rap for a good reason. It's it's a really intuitive thing for people to do while they're learning. Right. You win with something, then that's all you want to do. And so it tends to be pretty good feedback to like tell people, hey, don't force. Uh, But it it gets overplayed a bit. And I think that very often in different limited formats, forcing can be the optimal thing to do. And, you know, what we'll talk about today a lot is 
how that applies to Cube, and in particularly why I think it applies a lot to Cube, actually. I want to start, if you'll if you'll indulge me, I want to try and just mm-hmm. say back to you your overall thesis so that I can see if I've understood correctly from the uh, past episodes. You can correct me if I'm wrong anywhere mm-hmm. or maybe clarify things a little further, but I think it might be an okay place to start. So I think most people listening probably know what forcing means, but we're talking about basically sitting down at a draft table with some idea of what you're going to draft already in your head. And I think oftentimes these things get lumped into like two categories, right? There's forcing a draft and there's drafting the hard way, right? Which is an iconic article by Ben Stark where he basically talks about the virtues of staying open and why you shouldn't get married to your first couple picks. Staying open in the sense of really letting what is happening at the draft table dictate what you're going to draft. You know, you're not there to draft black-white. You're going to draft whatever the table tells you. Yeah, and I should have reread that article in preparation for this too. I've read it a couple times in the past, but if memory serves... The forcing he's advising against there is more about not getting married to your early picks than it is about having a right. preconception of what the format is about and saying like, well, I never play green white in this format because it's just bad right out of the gate. It doesn't matter if I open just running green white mythics. I'm never playing that color pair. It's more about like, oh, you open a bomb. Don't just get married to that color because what you could be leaving on the table is all the future bombs open and all the open colors that you're just not paying any attention to. And then you have forcing, right? And I think the drafting the Hardway article is kind of a thesis against forcing of any kind. But Ryan, in your podcast episode and articles, you've kind of laid out this idea that really it's a full spectrum between forcing and staying open and staying completely open, as in coming to the table a totally blank canvas and just literally letting what your past direct what you draft without any control is not good. Nor is showing up at the table and before a single pack has been open, just saying like, I am playing blue, black control does not matter what happens. I'm committed to this exact one specific deck. And instead, you sort of argue that every draft, every draft format, there is this sort of middle ground where you should come to the table with some conception of what is good in the format, the kinds of decks you want to end up in. And that could be a combination of just what decks happen to be successful in that given limited environment. It could also be things, honestly, I think that you just know that you're comfortable playing, whether that's I'm a good aggro player or you are comfortable with a particular archetype in a specific format. And then navigating the draft with this idea of the various places you could end up, which you say that some people would call forcing, you call forcing in some ways, where it's like, hey, look, the the example you gave in the podcast, I think, is really instructive. You kind of talk about your success playing Amonkhet Limited and how when you sat down to play Amonkhet Limited towards the end of the format, once you had figured it out, you were always playing one of four decks. It was always going to be white-black, white-red, white-blue, or blue-red. So you basically weren't touching green at all, but you were going to play any one of those four decks, and you had lots of different pathways for how you could end up drafting one of those decks. I'm kind of trailing off here, but that <laughs> is kind of the, the overall thesis, right? That you should actually sit down at the table and, and look at a draft as this sort of navigation between you listening to what's going on at the table, but also still bringing to the table your own perspective as a player and, you know, forcing the things that you know are good, even if that's a set of things as opposed to one specific deck. Yeah, I mean, I think you you covered a lot of the really big macro concepts from, from the podcast, which is great because it'll give people uh, some good context for our overall conversation. I think part of the title Art of Forcing and why I talk about it this way is because in order for people to listen to what I have to say about what I truly believe is how limited magic works, you kind of first need to dispel this notion against forcing or this notion that there's this good and bad tied to being open and listening to the table. You need to first 
push people to think a little bit outside their comfort zone and get to the point where they can say, you know what, no, I, I can take a little bit of control over this draft and and choose to not take the card that I know everybody thinks is the best card uh, out of this pack or choose not to go into blue even though it's the open color. Once you get to the point where you can be a bit more dynamic and start figuring out how you can take control of your draft, it, it opens the door to do a lot of really cool stuff, and I think it leads to winning more. Uh, one of my motivations for talking about this on the podcast and why, why I mentioned it, this podcast, not the podcast we're referring to, is because I felt like a lot of cube content, well, in fact, almost all of it is about cube design. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of discussions all here on podcasts. I've heard it on yours. I've heard it on all of the cube podcasts around being open, reading signals, using all of the nomenclature from normal limited in ways that I feel like when you start to really think critically through this lens, when you start entertaining more of the extremes of forcing too, some of those heuristics will start to break down. And things that you'll commonly hear when people talk about cube draft, they'll start feeling less optimal. And I'm hoping that this can serve sort of two purposes. One, level up people in terms of how they cube draft, and two, help, help cube designers try and think on the, on the other side uh, when they're making design decisions. I'm really excited for this conversation because this is something that I am keenly interested in. I would say like the beginning of this year, I think I've mentioned it on the show, like I have tried to make a concerted effort to just get better as a player of cubes, mostly because I used to play a bunch of limited and this was years ago, pre-pandemic when our local game store was still open. I would go down for drafts every week. I mean, we don't play digitally. So that was really my only opportunity to draft was like once a week. And that was a lot of drafting for me, right? I know if somebody plays on arena or whatever, that's an afternoon they've they've pounded out more drafts <laughs> in a format than I'll ever get in over the entire life of the uh, of the set but for me there was a lot of drafting and I could definitely feel week over week my improvement in a given format and that was very rewarding to be like I'm starting to learn this format more and also just felt like I was getting better as a player and I came to realize 6 months ago that just playing cube which is really all I do now basically I mean aside from like pre-release that's the <laughs> only competitive magic I'm playing is cube and just playing cubes and so many different cubes, it's been so hard for me to even know if I'm getting better as a player because the context is always changing, the meta is always changing. And so I, I'm really excited for this conversation just to learn more about your perspective and how to apply that to cube because something I've also felt, which I think maybe you'll agree with, is that I think in a lot of cubes, based on how they're designed, you can pretty much just always force way more easily than you could in a regular retail limited set because you have much more knowledge about the pool of cards that's going to be open. And because there's not as big of a delta between the best and worst cards in most cubes than there are in a regular set, even if you're the second or third drafter in a color, you're often going to get plenty of good cards to fill out your deck. And so if you just know there's a deck that works, you can kind of just sit down and draft it whenever you want. So for the most part, I agree with that. I think it's true. I think the the thing that cube brings up that's interesting is a, more of an emergent property of when you when you talk about how all the cards, right, the power level of all the cards are good, right? Now, limited over the last few years, the dregs of limited is a bit of a an old tale now, right? All the all the commons yeah, have their own on own spot now. But one of the things that happens when all of your cards are so good is the amount of different ways that you you can pair them kind of explodes exponentially. We could probably sit here for the next hour and just list possible archetypes in our own cubes 
And some people whole, would love that hour. episode. That's some people's <laughs> ideal cube podcast is just people saying blue, white, blink, <laughs> blue, yeah. white, flowers, um, space, blue, green, white, field perfect. of the dead. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the whole point here is that you have eight people sitting at a table, right? When you're cubing, maybe, maybe you have less or more or whatever, but you have a, a very small number of people sitting at a table when you're, and you're going to draft a cube. And that cube is going to support probably well over a hundred distinct decks that you can draft. High power cubes tend to really have hundred plus different ways that you can put things together, which just means that there's a lot more that you're not that like there's more that nobody is doing than anybody is doing in any given cube draft. So you get eight decks, and that is eight out of the hundred, two hundred, however many types of decks you could actually really draft. And so one of the things that means for the dynamic of a cube draft is it means basically all the time you're guaranteed that there are a bunch of things that nobody else at the table is doing. And you would think that that would give you a, um, instead, a desire to, to be open, right? Because, oh, just let the table tell you what to do now. If there's so much, the table will tell you and you can just pick something that no one's doing. But the way cube decks become different are usually a function of very specific cards. Something like an upheaval completely changes what your blue deck does, right? You can't really guarantee that nobody else is doing that because all of the cards are good and the signets or whatever that go for your upheaval go in a million other decks too. And so the signals that you would see at the table aren't necessarily those clear signals like you would, you would see in draft that nobody is doing something. Now, it can be if the upheaval is going last pick. Now, that's a different story. But what that means to me is when I think about forcing in cube, it means that if I open my pack and I see a card that is like upheaval in it, the fact of the matter is if I take that upheaval and upheaval is well supported, it is extremely unlikely that my deck is going to be bad if I just put on blinders and go for it. When yeah. I take that upheaval in that pick. The most recent draft that I 3-0'd was of my neoclassical cube, and I approached the draft with a very like whimsical, I'm not gonna try hard, I'm just gonna draft a deck I wanna draft, and I gotta pick two fast bond, and I was just like, screw it. Like I don't care if a fast bond deck is open at my seat, I'm just gonna do it. I'm gonna take all the cards that are best with fast bond, and I'm just gonna try and make it work. And anecdotally, I oftentimes feel like I do better at a cube draft when I am not try harding when i'm really trying to do my best which is i think essentially trying to draft open i oftentimes feel like i get in my own way and somewhat torpedo my own draft rather than just say like ah screw it i'm just gonna like pick a thing and go for it yeah so cube signals are different than signals in retail limited very distinctly we can go into that maybe a little bit later about maybe why that's the case but what what it tells me is it means, one, it's easier for me to decide what I'm going to do and then just do it, right? The likelihood that I get cut on something is pretty low, and a huge thing that changed... Remember, if, if you listen to that podcast, right, one of the things that I said at the is that you always need this contingency plan, okay? When you're forcing, the reason why people say forcing is bad is because you have a higher likelihood of train wrecking your draft. Right. right. If you sit down and you either say before you're going to do something or you, you just slam your first pick and you put on blinders and you never go away from it, 
if the people around you are, are going to cut you off, you might get screwed. You might not realize. You might A bunch of things can happen. You're increasing the likelihood that you train wreck your draft. Right. You might just guess wrong or whatever. Yeah. One of the things that happens in cubes, these, these places where all of the cards are just so good and there for a purpose, well, you don't actually even need to have such a strong contingency plan in place when forcing, right? When I'm forcing in Retail Limited, I have to sit down and I say, you know, what you said at the beginning for Amonkhet is true. I was only open to those four decks. But really what I did was I, you know, forced my way into white and blue-red happened very much as that backup plan when white dried up. It was a very, very purposeful plan of blue-red. Agra was a deck that used cards that wield really well. And if none of the white archetypes are open, that increases the likelihood that blue-red is open. So by putting blue-red as my contingency plan, I gave myself like a landing pad, right? right? I could force my way into white, but even if white wasn't open, I made sure I drafted white with a much stronger preference to the red and the blue cards to pair with it to open up this blue-red aggro contingency plan that used cards that wheel really well so that even if I lose my five first picks, I still end up with a great deck. And that's why I won so much in that format was that I had a plan to push myself into the best deck and a backup plan just in case that wasn't a train wreck. And I could do that all the time. The reason I bring this up is in cube, you don't even need a contingency plan. If I first pick upheaval and I really push myself into an upheaval deck and I don't get there, I'm still going to have a suite of awesome blue cards and signets or whatever else is going on, whatever the other best cards are. And like my deck at the end is still going to be great magic cards. So it sounds like you're saying sort of two things. And I think I get what your sort of thesis is when it comes to regular limited, that there are just better decks. And if you understand the format, actually focusing on what your end point is, is as important as focusing on that starting point and sort of navigating the early portion of the draft. And it sounds like what you're saying is when we try and apply that to cube, there's a lot less reward from reading the signals and staying open because it's just much more difficult to read the signals. And it's less about the proportions of colors in particular packs and things like that, and more about individual cards that you may or may not see. So you're just not going to get rewarded in the same way. And there's also less risk because it's not about, you know, am I getting, you know, the is my 20 third card in my deck a b plus or a c minus because i read the right color because in cube all the cards are just going to be pretty reasonable so where that you know not having a couple more cards in your color is just not going to really matter because those are just cards in your sideboard are those kind of the two two big points that you're making so far yeah they, they are and i'm going to anchor on one of the first things that you said to tie limited and cube together in a way that hopefully will will, will make this make sense and this is something that i talk about in limited that a lot of people may not have heard of, but I do mention again in that podcast. So when you're drafting, a lot of people, you know, pack one, pick three, you're looking at the pack and you're looking at the two cards that you have so far, because those two cards are what's in your pool. But what you also have to realize is what's also in your pool is everything you believe you're going to have the opportunity to take in the future. Right. Okay. And that's just true. Like the expected distribution of cards you are going to see it's like weird to like work this out in your head, but it's literally in your draft pool. You have a 33% chance of being able to take this card and that's 
in your draft pool. Right. It's like we're picking these cards in an order and we sort of want to spin a narrative about how that comprises our deck, but it doesn't actually matter at what point in the in the draft you drafted a particular card. All of them contribute equally. And so if you can bank on, you know, red feels more open in this limited draft, uh, you might get rewarded with a rare in pack three. And that is equally as important as the rare that you started with in pack one. Yeah. And the point is one of the rewards of getting into the open color and why you pivot into the open color, why it can be worth it in draft to pivot into the open color, is the you expect to see a lot more stronger cards of that color in the future. So when you determine red is open, even though you have no red cards in your pool, your pool already contains a bunch of great red cards, assuming right. you're correct that red is open. You know, you're, you're right on what you said with cube that uh, reading signals is much harder. They're more particular on a, on a single... If you're at a table where no one is drafting mono-red aggro, everyone will know by the end of pack one. And if someone wants to take that and read a signal and dive into mono-red aggro, they can. But outside of those types of density-based, very narrow decks, your archetypes, they don't speak to you in the same way that they do in limited, which is correct. That is one of the things that you said. Yeah, that's a great point. That sort of the structure of what cards indicate a particular strategy is very different in a lot of cube environments where there are still some strategies that rely on a huge density of particular effects, but there are others that just rely on a card or two. Yeah. If my goal is to win at cube, one of the things that I will explicitly do, if, if I see like a goblin guide or something like that, pack one, pick one, or maybe it's even later, one of the things that I'll do is I'll bias red but not aggressive. And then by the end of this pack, I will know if I can be the only red aggro deck at the table. It'll be obvious. Right. You just take but, the more flexible red cards, like the burn spells or whatever, so you can play those in any kind of red deck. And then if that goblin guy comes back, then you're like, all right, well, now these are also part of my mono red aggro deck, which I know is wide open. Exactly. And that that is the closest thing that I do to staying, quote unquote, open in cube. I choose to be more flexible based on the cards, the most powerful cards that I think are possible to wheel. And if they do, then I can jump on it. But I'm not going to sit down at a cube draft and try and wait to determine what to do until the table tells me to. I'm going to take almost full control over what I think I should be doing. And I don't think any good players do. At least I have no evidence that they do. I mean, I got into cube by like watching LSV draft the Magic Online Vintage Cube on YouTube. And it's been years since I watched those videos. Maybe his approach has changed, but probably watched 100 videos where he sits down and basically tries to draft the same deck every single time. He wants to be like <laughs> base blue nonsense, basically. Yep. And he'll take... And he always you know, gets there. Yeah, well, I mean, he, yeah, part of it is being a really good player. But yes, he always, always gets there because there's just so many good cards in the cube. And, you know, he'll take Romand over the best card in the whole cube in any other color, mostly because he's like, yeah... I just want to be base blue doing my base blue nonsense and it works. Right. And so you can't argue with it. Right. It's, it's obviously a successful draft strategy. I, I find that that's true of any time I see people talking about mid pack picks in like a draft. Like we have a pack one pick one channel in the MTG cube Dog discord. Every once in a while, someone will post like a pack one pick five or something. And it seems like everybody's just playing their first two picks no matter what. Like, yeah, I'm just playing these cards. Like it's cube. I, I took these cards. I intend to play them. I don't see anybody ever really changing their lane. Seriously. Well, I don't know if this is a fair comparison, but you watched me draft and abandoned my first four picks last night. I didn't watch you draft, but what'd you, what'd you abandon? Well, I showed you my, my first four picks, which were two blue cards, two white cards, and then I ended up red-green. And How'd your draft was, go? 
It went pretty well. I mean, I, I didn't win, but <laughs> <laughs> that's what I meant. <laughs> but the draft went well. I definitely found an open lane, and that that is a really satisfying experience. But that was also in a standard pauper cube, which felt a lot more like typical limited, where I was rewarded by having a deeper pool in those later packs. Cool counterfactual. All right. Great. <laughs> Somebody's done it before, but in all of my watching of people play cube, it seems like it's very rare that people will get to pick three and be like, oh, oops, accidentally, I'm not playing those first two cards at all. I'm actually just going to audible into this totally different deck. People sit down having pretty strong preferences, I think, for the most part. Yeah. And it can be hard to differentiate between preferences and optimal. I mean, in particular, oh, that is so important. That's so important. You're so right. I think so many people, especially in Cube, think that their preferences is the optimal thing because it's successful for them. And something you said <laughs> yeah. really resonated with me on the episode of Limited Level Ups, which is that successful players can often find many completely different successful lanes in a limited format. And I think that's an order of magnitude more true for Cube. Like, there's so many ways you can successfully draft a Cube. And to see people argue on Twitter about, like, that card's awful, you should never play it. And it's like, actually, no, that's part of... Many good players' successful strategies, believe it or not. Yep, and and I, I hope honestly, if there's one thing to take away of my opinion on how you know what what I feel about limited extends to cube, most of it is just it kind of explodes, all, you know, kind of <laughs> everything everything wide open. There's just so much more that you can do in a cube than you can do in retail limited, and that just means that there's more avenues that people can be successful. It means there's more archetypes that you can push for. It means that people can actually be a lot more successful with the, I'm going to sit down and do this. If you've drafted cube for a decade and your favorite thing is, you know, some blue mid-range deck, you're in your brain, you've internalized so many nuances of that, that you could sit down, draft a cube you've never seen before, say, I'm going to draft a blue mid-range deck. Probably it's going to exist in that cube, it exists in most, and you'll be able to piece together something pretty great that you'll play pretty great. That's a great point. And something that I was struggling to understand of how do I translate your theory from standard limited to cube is you point out how players that really understand the environment can exploit differences in their knowledge and the rest of the field. And that actually comes into play even more once a format gets more established because the really skilled players can identify patterns in the way that the broader community is approaching the format. And I definitely do not feel like I've ever played a limited format at that sort of skill level where I can make those kinds of exploitations. And I feel even less so in a cube environment where, you know, we're playing all kinds of different cubes. It's like last time I played this was three months ago and it was with, uh, you know, 40 cards have changed, 40 <laughs> cards have changed. And I'm only playing with two of the same people in this pod. So it's like, how, how is there even a metagame that I could, I could even theoretically expect to exploit those kinds of differences. But this is another way that you have those differences just in the fact that you have a lot of experiences with that environment. You have drafted certain kinds of decks. And so you can exploit those nuances in just understanding how a certain set of cards fit together and end up getting cards late that, you know, other people might not expect to put in the blue mid-range deck or whatever kind of thing you have special experience with. Or even, importantly to me, I think, you might have a concept or an idea of ways to put cards together that like the cube designer didn't even necessarily bake into it I, we've seen this happen all the time right where somebody brings a cube to cube night someone drafts a deck and the designer's like i didn't even know that was possible right so it's not about yep. learning the meta in the sense that you have to like learn what the designer has woven into the environment it's just about knowing in the like broad all of magic sense how cards interact what kinds of decks exist and how you can find a lane yeah there's just a bunch of overlap from cube to cube actually the whole reason the cube map is like a salient thing is because this is true. 
Right. right. If like, all cubes were equally unique and novel, it would just sort of be this uniform field in the 20-dimensional, 20,000-dimensional hyperspace, and there wouldn't be a meaningful map to generate. It's just because there are these patterns and similarities that it can turn into something that actually makes logical sense that you can read. About the metagame side of things, I think there's a, there's a few extra things to push there. One, I'm not convinced that there wouldn't be a metagame to, to a cube if you drafted it every day forever right like you, you may actually end up learning something like we learn about limited metagames and oh i, th- I yeah, think you absolutely sure. would i think it's just a matter of context that we aren't playing cube in that way at least in right. our local group but i will tell you the way that i've metagamed my own cubes which is not about um it's like classic i don't know if this is you know it's like you, you don't what, what is the phrase like it's not about the is it it's not about the player it's about the game but the opposite like something about you play like you play the man oh wait yeah what what's are, this phrase what is, i know exactly what you're talking about it's it's a very famous phrase someone will think about it eventually hi it's andy co-host of this podcast i believe the phrase that ryan is reaching for here is play the ball not the man or play the ball not the person as we would say in 2023 Though I believe the meaning is actually the opposite of what Ryan's getting at. It's kind of a way to avoid an ad hominem attack, a suggestion that you should address someone's argument or ideas instead of the person behind them. But I still think that's what he's thinking of. Back to the show. My main point is when I used to, I used to run weekly cube nights. And there were, I think, 80 people in a Facebook group. We often ran two pods. Different people come in and you start learning how different people draft. And there are, you know, there, there's that one person that quite literally in that group, I believe there was one person who just always drafted mono red. I think every group's got someone like that. <laughs> Maybe you don't do this yet, but I argue that you should. You should draft differently. If you sit down at a table, you look around, you go, oh, look, the mono, the mono red guy's over there. I absolutely do. Yeah. I mean, if I'm sitting downstream of Theo, I'm not going to get blue red cards. He's not going to pass Merktide region. Or if I'm sitting next to Jay, he's not going to pass me lingering souls. So don't bank on that. Right. So the, the when I talk about how your strategy depends on the metagame, the, the metagame isn't necessarily about what's good or what's bad. It's about what you can see from your cards, right? Like what can you expect to see? Again, it comes back to that same idea that like at any given point, your pool is all the cards you have plus the cards you expect to have the opportunity to take. And so one of the things that I push people as to why you shouldn't sit down at the table of any draft format with a blank slate is based on that concept. When you sit down at a draft table, your pool starts based on the expected distribution of cards that you think you'll see. Now, for a cube, let's say you're drafting a 360 cube, you can know literally these are the 360 cards that I might see. And you can also know there's not an equal probability I will see all of them, right? I, there's a very low probability I would see power if it's a powered cube because you'd have to open it. Whereas there's a very high probability you're going to see a random white one drop because there are a bunch of them. And maybe it's not as popular of a deck at cube nights. And that's a pattern that you've recognized. And so you, you can start building an understanding of what do the different people in your playgroup like to do? And once you have that understanding, you can begin to recognize what is the distribution of cards that I expect to see. And once you have that, 
strategies can very clearly emerge before you sit down of different paths to navigate the draft in order to end up into one of the decks that you think is the best there that has the highest likelihood of winning. Do you think that stuff is a prerequisite for this kind of thinking? Like, we're all playing in different contexts, and it's really hard to completely transfer one lesson to another context, right? So let's mm-hmm. let's take the specific context of KubeCon. We're all going to be at KubeCon. Sure. We're all going to be drafting lots of cubes that are presumably, for the most part, new to us. If you're sitting down to draft a cube that maybe you've looked at the list for five minutes, right? Let's, I'm, I'm not planning on simulating drafting every single cube I hope to draft at KubeCon. That would be a very time-consuming thing to do leading up to the event. Let's say I've looked at the list a little bit. I know what's going on, but I'm sitting down with seven strangers with a cube I've never played before that I've maybe looked at the list. How much does this approach apply, or are you just... like like What's going through your head when you're looking at a pack from that cube, and how much do these ideas actually really come into play? It's a very good question. They definitely are less... It's not that they're less... Some of the extreme examples are less relevant, right? Because the extreme examples of, like, I know I can do this, and I know I'm going to win when I do it, those kind of disappear. It's hard to know anything when you're that... Right. Well, the, naturally, I would say the the drafts at KubeCon are a lot more entropic than the drafts of any given group, right? Because a given group, all of them have probably drafted the list a few times. They have different opinions. And while it's not perfect, they can all predict each other in some way. It makes the draft experience itself a little bit less random. At right. KubeCon, I would expect the drafts to feel a lot more random. You're and and this is this is similar to you know when you're actually in retail limited depending on the quality of people at the table in terms of their draft skills drafts can become more or less entropic because right. if you're if if I go to FNM at a new store and I don't know anybody there I might see a lot of things I wouldn't have expected to see because I'm going to be off in my prediction of the distribution of cards I'm going to see Something else that you mentioned in the episode of limited level ups that I thought was interesting is that you feel that there is actually this moment early in a in a draft format where there is a high level of predictability. And I could see that similar thing happening in these sort of like first time experiences at an event like KubeCon yes. where you're not going to see Jace the Mind Sculptor and Swords to Plowshares and these Known, kinds of like flexible, versatile, good cards. Exactly. Like those are the cards right. that are going to get snapped up and it's going to be the more novel, less recognized cards that are going to go later in the pack. So I feel like even though it is in a way much more random much less coherent there are still going to be distinct patterns there oh this is this is great because uh one i'm glad that i sent the episode because i think it really you really got it and so you kind of like lobbed me the softball before i even got to like swing so that's exactly correct so the thing that i am not going to be able to do at kubecon is get a good feel for that distribution but from looking at a list with zero practice drafts the things that I'm going to look for are the the opposite ends of the cards in the cube. One, I'll look at the top 20% of cards in the cube because that'll just tell me what are power outliers. Where should I be aiming my deck in in this new cube draft? Because if I want to win, I need to be I need to have a deck that can compete with whatever the top tier stuff is going to be. But then I'm going to almost ignore the middle. I'll, I'll go straight to the bottom. Not because it's actually the bottom, but the question becomes, what are the best things that I can do with the cards that I believe other people think are bad? And then when I draft, what I will be looking for is 
Do I see the cards that I think can be good that other people think are bad in a pack? And then I'll let the table tell me what they know. If I get lucky, I'll be able to employ some kind of strategy like I described the extreme version with mono red. I'll be able to open a pack, see some cards that I think are likely to wheel, bias myself towards drafting generic good cards that will go with those cards that wheel. So I'll end up, like if it's some red card, I'll end up taking the second best card in the pack if it's red, just because I think it's likely that this other card might wheel that I can do something utterly broken with, which is going to be more likely that I can do. I could see myself doing something like that at KubeCon. Yeah, I think there's another really great sort of practical piece of advice in there, which I think you mentioned as well in your article on Star City Games, where even though a lot of people like to pretend they can, no one can remember the contents of every single pack that goes around. Like, it is just so much information. And so that strategy of saying, I'm not going to try to remember everything here, but here's a couple benchmarks that I'm going to plant that are going to be easy for me to remember so I can I can actually read signals in a very defined way, and in a defined way where you're focusing on the information that is relevant to your plan and the picks you've already made. Yeah, exactly. Right. You got to come up with a plan and the things that you need to remember are, are what is, you know, important for that. Right. Like if I, if I think that red card is going to wheel and I'm biasing towards red, it's very important that I remember when it doesn't wheel. Maybe I still end up in a red deck, but it'll drastically shift the decisions that I make. But of course, you know, you, you can't remember everything. In limited, this is most common, like about colors, just trying to Instead of remember every card in a pack, remember the distribution of colors so that if a color was entirely not taken or all of the cards of a color was taken, you know. In cube, that's a lot less relevant in part because you don't have collation, so you can just have packs that are missing colors and stuff. Yeah, I was wondering if, if that was something worth mentioning, is that there is that really concrete difference between collated packs in Limited, and most cube designers do not collate p- packs because it's just a lot of work, you know. Structure packs, so you have a somewhat regular distribution of colors. Instead, it's usually uniform random, so you can absolutely just have a pack that is all one color. Is that something you factor into translating this knowledge from Limited to cube, or do you just sort of have to, you know, cope with that? You just deal with imperfect information more often. I don't think it changes much other than I can make more certain decisions when I passed a pack with no green cards in Limited, right? Like one of the best things that can happen in Limited is you sit down, your second pack, you go, huh, there's no green commons. If you're on Arena, there's no foils, which means you know a green common was taken. And then you sit and you go, okay, what's the best green common? Right? You can navigate your entire draft knowing what that person did. And that can change everything. In Cube, you never get that. Interesting. And it yeah. does make navigating these things more difficult. But similarly to the reason that I said at the beginning, that like you don't get punished in the same way. So it's also not as big of a deal that you can't read the signals that way. For sure. I do also wonder if, if you could make the argument that because the packs can be a little bit more irregular, it's easier to sort of set mental landmarks and kind of remember, oh yeah, this was this green heavy pack, but I know it had this like weird other card in it or things like that, where just the irregularity can give your mind things to latch on to potentially. Yeah, but it can also give you things to latch. This is the most common mistake I see in people that are like trying to be good at cube draft, like when you're, when you're tryharding. One of the most common mistakes is like giving yourself false information. When you see a pack with no green cards in cube, it's like pack one, pick three. That does not mean that oh, for sure, yeah. right or green. But if all. you can remember, you know, now I remember this was a weird pack that had some feature about it. On the wheel, you do get real information from that. 
Mm-hmm. Right. You see a that's pack 100%. with four fetch lands or something, and you're like, wow, the four fetch land pack. That's a very mm-hmm. notable yep. pack. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it easier to remember what was gone when it comes back around. I, I really like something you mentioned, too, about looking at the best cards in the cube and then looking down instead at not the best cards, but the maybe least appealing cards in the cube. You were talking about that as a way to potentially exploit cards you don't expect other people to be taking. I also love that as a way to better understand the nature of that environment because if there's a card you look at and immediately think well why is this here if we give the designer some credit there's presumably a reason why it's there and you can maybe (laughs) learn a lot about how the texture of games is different if you're like well why is there this like b tier shatter here it's like oh actually there's a ton of artifact creatures or whatever there's a ton of things that actually make this card viable that i otherwise might have ignored might be a good way to like surface features of an environment that might otherwise be hard to catch if you just look at the cards that are immediately least appealing and try and figure out why they're there yeah it's also good practice for just improving one of the things i used to so when i was drafting a ton i used to share the same tweet the first week of every single format maybe before and it was it was a reminder that when your opponent beats you with a card that you think is bad to not go odd they're an idiot i lost to a bad card it's to recognize it's the beginning of the format you don't know what you think you know things can be so different, and the fact that you think it's bad and you lost to it is an opportunity for you to learn. Why did you lose to it? Why did you think it was bad? Did it seem like your thinking about the card was correct? If not, maybe reevaluate. It's funny, I thought you were going to go the other way. I thought you were going to say, if you lose to a card you think is bad, don't immediately go, well, I guess that's the best card, and (laughs) and adopt that strategy. Which I think is another way some people could potentially parse that information. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you you can decide how much you swing, right? between things. I think it's... That's an optimistic statement. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think you can. Is it hard to control that? Maybe. Right? Emotions can definitely get the best of you, right? When you you lose to something, you, you know, the easiest thing to do is either that was insane or brush it off. In reality, I think that if we're talking about, like, how do people get better at drafting, it's trying to do your best to find those opportunities to learn. And almost all of them has to do with focusing on the places you could be wrong. Yeah. Because you don't you don't get to learn when you're right. Yeah, isn't that so boring about being right? <laughs> being wrong <laughs> is the is the best state because as soon as you realize you're wrong, that is exactly the moment that you have progressed. Jeez, yep. Anthony's just so yep. bothered by being right all the time. That's <laughs> must be hard for you. Fortunately it doesn't happen that often. <laughs> just to go back to our hypothetical arrangement. Mm-hmm. You're sitting down at a draft table to play a cube you've never played before at KubeCon with, let's assume, Mm -hmm. strangers. You've looked at the list ahead of time. You've identified what you think are maybe some power outliers, and you've also maybe identified some cards that you think you are very likely to get to wheel. Therefore, they are virtually more in your pool than cards that you don't think are going to wheel, and you're trying to figure out how to exploit those. What do you think the first couple picks looks like in your ideal draft are you just taking like the most powerful card in the first couple packs regardless of how it synergizes with your early picks the way that some people will recommend doing in retail limited if they're drafting open or are you still sitting down and saying like no matter what this cube is i know i like red black aggro and blue white control and like there's a like pantheon of archetypes or themes in your head that you think are successful in the abstract right so the what what do i think the most likely thing I am going to do for most cubes at KubeCon, just directly, is before I sit down, I will go through the list and, you know, forget about the, like, looking at the bottom half. That's one strategy that that we could talk about. What am I hoping happens? 
it's not even the like open the the oko or whatever the the stupid card i imagine one of two things will happen for most cubes one i will feel like something is good and over supported in which case i'll just force it i just won't won't care about most other things so you're comfortable enough like looking at a list for five or ten minutes and being like wow there's just too much support here for mono green ramp. I'm just going to go all in and just go for mm-hmm. it. Because if I believe the deck itself is likely to be very good, when I look at the the highest power of, of the cube and I think an average version of this deck is going to compete with the best decks there. And I look at the support for the deck and I think that there's so much of it that it would be very hard for me. Like it could easily support two drafters. It would be very hard for me to end up with a bad deck if I literally just didn't see cards that didn't go for that deck. Yeah, I think a lot of the times I would just slam go for it unless my pack one pick one has some outlier for some other reason. I see myself doing that a lot. In the areas where I don't necessarily think that there's something explicitly oversupported like that, I think most likely I'm going to be looking for the... This is a it's both a bad and a good example because I think uh, Upheaval's Time to Shine is a bit in the past. I don't think it it tangos the way it used to. In this Vintage is this cube. Is cube. We can make it whatever we want. If we want to make right. the Upheaval's Great Here Cube, we can do that easy. Well, it's funny. We could try <laughs> and think of a modern card that fills a similar role, but I don't think they make cards like that anymore. Like Something I've realized from focusing on the Neoclassical Cube is that so many of the more old-school power outliers were very committal. And the reward was enormous. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. like, yeah, build your deck around upheaval, and then like your opponent, doesn't matter what they're doing, can never win, right? Like the, the reward is huge, but the commitment is also pretty big. I feel like all the power outliers now are like it's upheaval, Fable but the mirror it's breaker. Also <laughs> like, a, a four mana right. six so, so with double strike still, and hexproof. I I guess I, I would I bifurcate cards in the sense that like the top of the cube, when I say I'm looking at the top twenty percent of the cube. I expect a large majority of those cards to be recent cards and yeah. generically good cards that like if you put them all together you end up with like a multicolor mid-range deck that's unbeatable. <laughs> uh, I, I do think that deck is very good in a lot of cubes too. Yeah, and that's like yeah, the I, mean, I definitely plan. don't say it's not and I expect to take those cards over most things. Commander tribal, right? But but also one of the things to realize is once you get out of the vintage, the legacy space, the next tier of those modern cards, I don't think they have the same effect. And I could be wrong about this because I don't... There are, There's a lot of types of cubes that I haven't drafted that use, that use this level of modern cards. But I don't think they have the same type of just generically incredible yet game-warping and value-oriented mid-range cards like Fables and Solitudes and Furies. I, you know, I, I don't think that happens when you go a little lower. Then again... I'm willing to be 100% wrong about that. But what I'm hoping to open, outside of the the crazy, as I said, the top, top cards that are just going to be generically great, is going to be a card like Upheaval or Fast Bond, as an example you gave. Something that is narrow, but ridiculous. The reason why I'm hoping to open that is usually by the sheer nature of that card being ridiculous when it works and the fact that it will be supported... I'm going to end up with a better deck by being able to make a card ridiculous than I am by just putting together whatever cards and whatever colors I can. This is becoming less true over time because of the way that recent cards look. The hopefully cube design trends can uh, can be a countervailing force there because <laughs> I don't know. I, I know as a cube designer, I think we'll talk a little bit about this perspective 
as a designer too, but I would prefer to have an environment that rewards commitment rather than an environment that rewards just mm-hmm. hedging the entire time and being like, well, I'll end up with a pile of good cards no matter what, and it'll be fine. Interesting. Well, in that, and that's the thing, because there's a big difference between like pile of good cards cube, pile of good cards retail limited. Like the pile of good cards, I don't even feel like it rewards you for being in the right colors or whatever. We're now in this weird world where the good cards are so good that they're by themselves better than when you work really hard to make a synergistic card insane. Yes. Yeah, I I think so too. The best cards are that good. And once that is true, the answer is, well, you just take them and you put them in your deck. And this is why we don't put Oko in our cubes, people, for the most part. (laughs) But to be fair, because everybody is taking those cards it's still pretty hard to have your deck be just all of them. And I think you can still play them in your highly, highly synergistic deck that makes a, another card insane up to their level, let's say. It's kind of like and just so, looking at like the Moxin, right? Like you take a Moxin, you put it in your deck, but yep. <laughs> it's it's a windmill slam. Everyone's going to play it. But at the end of the day, it's not so warping to the environment because yeah, there's five of them and Lotus and stuff floating around. So in a powered cube, it's like everyone's doing a strategy that's, five-eighths power boosted by these broken cards. And and maybe and maybe it ends up being like a... Uh, you know, I think that it's it's been the case in the Magic Online Vintage Cube for a while now that just, like, play white cards. You can be a white aggro deck, you can be a white mid-range deck, you can be a white control deck. The white cards are good. Take white cards, play them, and figure out what to do with them is a good strategy. I could see that ending up being the case in a lot of cubes at CubeCon too. I mean, overall, one of the main things that I would say about the dynamics of draft and trying to draft optimally is that you open a lot of doors for yourself once optimal becomes when you try and think of optimal as like exploitative instead of like letting the table tell you what to do i think in particular cube it's very hard to listen to the table when i talk to a lot of people about when they draft cube i think many of them feel the fall they feel like they like to draft in a way where they open their pack, they take a card they think is fun that they want to play with, and then they play with it. They don't really change, they keep their first few picks, and they feel like they're not drafting optimally, but it's cube night, and they're drafting to have fun, right? Not to, to win. Andy, you even said it yourself, you feel like you lose more when you try hard. Yeah. And I, and I think that and it one sucks. of the big reasons <laughs> for that can be that the way that you see trying hard is trying to employ the you know the best strategies for retail limited which actually aren't going to work so great in cube anyways but i i don't know my main thing here is i think you gain a lot in trying to think about a cube list figuring out if there is an exploit and then going for it i don't want to like push this question too hard but do you feel like you need the confidence to make that kind of assessment to apply any of these strategies. Like if someone listening is like, well, that's great for Ryan Sachs. He's a fantastic magic player. He can look at a list and figure out what's good in five minutes of just browsing. If someone does not feel confident in their ability to do that, does this strategy just not work? Yeah. I mean, we don't even have to build a straw man. I'm right here. (laughs) And I mean, (laughs) the way you're describing, like looking at the list and saying, I will look at the top 20% of the cards and the bottom 20% of the cards they're not sorted. You are able to do that. And I think a lot of players yeah. are not going to be able to in the same way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that one of the things that, that I will say is like, and first off, 
who knows what the top 20 or bottom 20 is. But I, I can, over playing a lot of cube, a lot of magic, a lot of limited, there are going to be cards that jump out at me as odd. There are going to be cards that are like, well, yeah, that seems insane. I could be wrong about it. But there's still things that are going to fly out at my face when I look at a list. And I understand that, like, you know, that's not necessarily the case for everybody. What I, what I do believe is I think that for the most part, for most people, because the risk is low, right? Because the fact of the matter is you're unlikely to train wreck if you go for something. I think people that lean in harder to looking at their first few packs, you know, seeing a card and going, I think this card is insane. I'm just going to treat it like this is what I got. This is my deck. I think people would win more doing that. I think I win more when I do that. But but I think that it's not it's not because it's like easier or anything. It's not because like oh you're not navigating properly, but you're not good enough to have done it. It's I think that's way closer to an optimal strategy to cube draft because when you get to pick these power outliers and push your whole deck towards them, whatever that power outlier is, it doesn't matter what it is. Your deck gets lifted up, and the risk of doing this in normal retail draft is that. If you mess up or, you know, somebody steps in your way, you move from a deck that would have been an eight or a nine, and it drops all the way down to a two or a three. But in cube, you move from an eight or a nine to like a seven when that happens. Then you just get a little lucky or outplay your opponent and you still get the three out. Like the way that I would put it is if you, let's say you're, you're a good drafter such that your average is a seven and you just aim for like, you know, just... You're not going to be so committal. You're just going to draft the way that you normally draft. You're going to end up with a good deck, two colors, great. It's going to be a seven most of the time. I think if you push yourself really hard to pick things that you believe can be power outliers if they work and just tell yourself it's going to work out, you're going to find that you end up with decks that are eights, nines, and tens more often than you would otherwise. And you'll find when you miss you don't actually end up much worse, if at all worse, anyways, from the other way of draft. Because I believe that is true about cube draft, I believe that the like best advice that I could give anyone that's trying to win at cube draft is to just be confident. Just tell yourself it's going to work out. And I love that your article and, and podcast episode really gave me permission to, to draft that way and not feel like I am phoning it in or uh, or just kind of forcing in a way that is non-optimal, right? I, I think I definitely was of the mindset that, well, I'm supposed to draft open and that's like the way to be the best. Ma- I mean, honestly, like the kind of skilled magic player I want to be is the kind of magic player that can sit down at a cube completely blind with total strangers and like have success, right? Navigate that environment well. I don't particularly care to be the kind of skilled magic player that can practice the format a whole bunch and like become the tippy top best of the best by like learning the meta and like finding all the ins and outs and exploits and like really capitalizing on them and so the like allure of the abstract skill of like drafting open and just identifying what the table is misevaluating right like this card shouldn't be here this late because this card's actually you know a second pick card and here it is six picks so I'm like next leveling the table that allure is very appealing to me but I think for all the reasons you said, giving up your first couple picks in a cube draft is giving up a lot. And the reward is, I think, relatively minimal compared to retail limited if you actually do find an open lane. A hundred percent. And again, it's not, I'm not pushing, like, I don't think it's easier even either, right? Like, 
the the person who can just sit down. Well, no, you have and, to know what's good before you sit down, so that makes exactly. it quite a bit harder. And and your your pool of cards, especially when you're talking about a random cube, is massive. I mean, it's all of magic. And Anthony Anthony said, like, what, you know, what do you mean when you're looking at a cube and the good and the bad is jumping out at you that you can just sift through until that? That's still a skill to build, and like to be able to sit down and go, okay, I know that I love these different types of decks, or that. I think this will work and being able to take a somebody else's curated environment and piece that all together is absolutely a skill to develop. But that's a better skill to develop if you want to build it win at cube than figuring out how to read the table because you just don't you don't get rewarded in the same way that you do in limited. Yeah. So I'm a little bit curious just because we obviously one of the reasons why it's so hard to talk about playing cubes is it is they're all different. So like it's really hard to be on the same page (laughs) with other people just to give sort of another concrete example for me on this sort of spectrum of retail limited where you think that forcing as you define it does make sense when you sort of have this context about the metagame and what are these sort of like ideal endpoints you're trying to hit. And then you think it's even more viable in cube environments that have like these big power outliers, a very high floor on all the cards, a lot of you unique build arounds. What do you think about my cube, the regular cube, which is somewhere in the spectrum that does play a lot more like a limited set where there aren't necessarily those high highs and it does sort of matter what those like medium cards you're getting in the middle of in the middle of your sort of draft pool? So it's a great question. So I'll answer it in two ways. One, there's a bunch of different types of limited formats, right? People like to call limited formats prints or popper, right? Where do the commons matter or do the rares matter? And in reality, the best limited formats, and this is the one that you would try and emulate to in your cube design, is the one in which all cards matter. It's not like the rares just squash the commons, but the rares let you do new and powerful things that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to do, so they're fun and there's a bunch of different stuff to do in the format. I think you do a really good job of creating a cube like that. But what that does mean, and, and I believe you've even talked about this in your design, you do purposefully see different types of power level outliers in different ways. So if I, uh, I'll give you an example of a card in your cube that I don't even know if it's a top card in your cube from you've, you've played a lot, but I remember Archfiend of Ifnir. Oh yeah. Right, is a great rate five drop with a lot of synergies to push a really low floor, uh, but it's probably not like in the top five or 10% of cards in your cube. It's probably not. I mean, maybe it is, but I think I it was wouldn't. at some point, but I think the environment's gotten low to the ground enough. Just having a five drop that can die to removal is a little bit of a higher cost than it used to be. I think right. if you asked our play group and the coder of people that have played this cube dozens of times, you would get wildly different answers on the viability of Archfiend of Ifnir. Archfiend of Ifnir is an example of a card. I could see myself sitting down to draft your cube, opening a pack with Archfiend of Ifnir, and taking it and trying to just zero in on a black deck that's going to be able to use that card. I, I could see it. Uh, do I do I know if that's necessarily optimal? I don't know. We're all in this like weird, fuzzy head world where who knows what else is in the pack and everything else. The actual answer of like, if I were to draft your cube as I remember it, I don't know how much it has changed. But one of the things that I recall from the list, and I think you both would say this is true also, at least that list, if I were to be drafting that cube optimally, the most likely thing that I would do is sit down with a 90% assumption that I'd draft red-black. That is a pretty high <laughs> assumption. Yeah, I mean, I we both think red-black is the best or among the top three best decks in the cube, and I don't think that's incorrect. This does bring up a question, though, which... I had when listening to your episode is that you were talking about all the success you had in Amonkhet Limited playing this way. 
what happens in a theoretical world where you're sitting down at a table of people that all sure. agree that red black is that best deck, right? Like right. you weren't touching green at all in Amonkhet Limited. Presumably sitting down with seven Ryan Saxes, I would be able to get literally every single green card at the table. At some right. point that has to become viable, correct? Like isn't there some like level of like self leveling here that happens? Self correcting rather? So it depends on the format. Uh, for for limited at least there there have been multiple formats in which a color Amonkhet wasn't one of them but there have been i think the most recent that i can recall is a uh, battle for zendikar uh where most people on the pro tour uh, believed that green was yeah. legitimately unplayable i remember uh and you you had pro tour pods in which there were zero green drafters if i remember correct and so that means that you had a table of the best magic players in the world making the statement that even though they all had the opportunity and they all knew they had the opportunity to be the only green drafter at the table. They'd rather uh, be the fourth blue drafter or whatever. That's that's correct. Yeah. Uh, and so it does depend on the format. The answer is I would have been, I would have had to have played my backups much more often of white, black, and blue, red than I did in Amonkhet. And maybe I would have had to push into other color combinations. I, I'm not exactly sure. If you want to think about it this way, I had four decks, there's eight drafters. Generally, it's not uncommon to see two people in the same color combination in a, in a yeah, draft pod. that's true. And so if there were eight of me, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to have us all still end up with pretty good decks in that format. Okay, so um, to go back to the regular cube example, yes. what if you're all 90% to draft red-black? Like, right. like 90% was probably too big no of a stand by it ryan come <laughs> but, on let's go <laughs> the, the, the main thing and, and i don't think this is a bad thing my my uh my claim about why it's so high and uh i actually don't i think with a lot of me it would still be fine is because one of the things that i felt was not only that red black was uh, a deck with such an incredibly high ceiling and it could it could tango as one of the best decks it also felt like the colors were deep and it had a wide amount of support. At least the state of the cube that I remember, I think you could probably have an eight-man pod with two and a half, maybe even three red-black drafters with everybody's deck being able to function as a reasonable magic deck and play good magic with everybody else at the table. You know, that matches our actual play experience. That has definitely so. happened, yes. That has definitely happened more uh, than and once. And so the, the point is, is when that's true, and I don't necessarily... I'm going to assume that other people aren't going to be as extreme as me. And when I a game of sit down at the table and I'm picking cards, I'm affecting the people downstream of me. So I'm reducing the probability that any to, anybody to my left is going to go for red-black. They might still. I'm not saying I'm making it zero. But I'm reducing it. And so by me sitting down and just starting out going going for it, I'm lowering the likelihood other people do, which again lowers the likelihood that I end up in the situation where there's four or whatever. And so in the worst case there, it's low low probability I have to backdoor. I have to backdoor into something else. My cards are still going to be good, but it's not going to be as great. But more likely there's going to end up being two black red drafters. I'm one of them, and I think it's one of the best decks. But I, so I think for most cubes, this goes, you know, kind of both ways. Usually there are outliers that you can pack one, pick one, or in one of your first packs and zero in on, and that's like a beneficial thing to do. And for many cubes, there's, by really having a rich breadth of support that feels good and overlapping synergies, it's very easy to end up with one 
in which the optimal strategy might be to really push for. And you're right, if I sit at a table where there's eight copies of me that all have the same prior, well, uh, that doesn't bode well for for us. But we luckily all have for to all realize. of us, that can't happen. <laughs> like, I know I, <laughs> I love you, Ryan, but I think maybe one Ryan Sachs is enough for this world. I'm not sure we need eight of them. Yeah. <laughs> But think of what um, we could accomplish. We could accomplish a lot with eight Ryan Saxes. That's true. <laughs> so just to just to I sort of summarize so that, cubes. is it correct that even though this cube is pretty different from like the classic iconic vintage and legacy cubes, and at KubeCon there are going to be a ton of other things that are just pretty different from that that sort of baseline, you're still going to take this similar approach to trying to draft them when you're maximizing for your win percentage. I genuinely believe that this is true for most cubes. Yeah. I don't know the exact texture in which i will say you know no it's not going to be true for this type of cube but i imagine it would have to be some particular type of novelty cube because the example of like why would i do this at the highest power level makes sense and the fact that i do it at retail limited also suggests like the the normal types of magic between retail limited and the highest power level cube are all in some way shape or form the way that i would try and draft a cube is going to boil down to that as well for a novelty cube, I don't know. I think most of them... They're pretty different. I'm not sure we need to try and expand this thesis to also draft include the, the, the changeling cube. The only thing that cube. I'd say is, because they're playing in such a weird space, my brain, likes, at least at the moment, thinks they'd be easier to exploit if you could figure it out. I, I want to acknowledge the designer part of our brains for a second, because... Yeah. Something I have felt in the past is that I am better at drafting other people's cubes than my own. And I couldn't really explain why, but I feel like your thought technology has given me language to to explain why, which is that I look at anybody else's cube. I didn't design it. It came from somebody else's brain, sprung forth from their perspective of the game. I always think it's not perfectly imbalanced, right? I always think, oh, well, this color seems better, or this card seems out of place and really powerful, or this strategy seems like it's going to be really good. But inherently, when I look at my own cube, I don't really think that. I mean, like, I know that the best blue-red, like, Delver-style kind of aggro deck, tempo deck, is maybe the best deck in the cube, if you can get it. But in the grand scheme of things, like, I don't include anything that I think is not good enough, right? Like, you mentioned 90% chance to sit down and play black-red in the regular cube. I imagine you don't feel that way about any of the cubes you design. So... When you design a cube, do you feel like it is more imbalanced? Do you find yourself having a harder time finding these exploits or finding these lanes that you think give you this pre-knowledge when you sit down at the table? And if not, then how do you find those lanes in an environment that you yourself designed that presumably is closer to imbalance in your in your perspective, at right. least. I guess maybe just to add to that a little bit, is part of your design process trying to sand off those potential exploits? So it's, it's actually purposefully not. And I think actually in most of the cubes that I would design, that I have designed, I think for most of them, I purposefully set it such that if you wanted to win, forcing an aggressive strategy would be probably your best bet. And the reason I do that is people cube for fun. People rarely are going to a cube night and like trying to super spike it you know, 3-0 every time. They're, they're there to have a good time. And if you disagree with I Ryan, find... make sure you tweeted him and not us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that they don't exist, but for the most part, at least in my experience, I think that you end up with a better, more balanced feeling experience 
by over-supporting aggressive decks to push it such that people end up drafting them more often than they otherwise would so that other people know they have to respect it. I think that this leads to a more balanced feeling cube where different decks of different speeds win and there's a you know a good diversity between the aggressive decks, the mid-range decks, and the controlling decks. But at least I've found with the groups that I tend to play with, like you have a bunch of people that are going to sit down that won't draft the aggressive deck even if it falls in their lap. Because yeah. that's not what they're there for. And because of the way that aggressive decks are based on density, I think the optimal strategy in most of the cubes that I design is the one that I described where you note the goblin guide and you see if it wheels. Because you give up almost nothing. The aggressive decks in the in my, the cubes that I design are going to be one of the best decks. They're going to be one of the decks that you can draft most reliably. And you give up almost nothing by putting yourself in the position to pounce on that situation. So I, I, I wouldn't describe my cubes as balanced. I love hearing that, honestly. Because so many cube designers, I hear them describing that they seek balance. And it's like, that's a really hard goal to chase for a lot of reasons. Not least of which nobody will agree on what balanced is. And so actually acknowledging that like, yeah, hey, you know what? If some goon showed up at my door and said, we're drafting you cube right now and the winner gets 10 grand, all seven losers <laughs> get, you know, uh, water splash in their face. You know what you're forcing in every one of your cubes. Like you're not going to draft the hard way at all. You're like, nope, I'm going to draft this aggro deck and I'm going to crush people with it. That's a weird yeah, carrot but... and stick pairing you've come up with. <laughs> Look, man, I'm doing it on the cuff here. Off the um, cuff, but not on the cuff. I, I still think, you know, balance itself can is, is important and it's a thing... The reason I had an answer to that question is because I've thought about it for all of my cubes, and I often do. And I think that to some degree, like, uh, Anthony, I'll give you an example about about your regular... So first off, you know, uh, I like your regular cube a lot as a cube. Like, my staying Don't that worry, I'll cut would that force <laughs> is not a... Is not like a, oh, I, you know, I think your cube sucks. Definitely not. And I, I think that there's... Choices that we all make as designers, a lot of that has to do with our own personal preferences for things, right? Like for me, I have designed cubes before where like part of when I've designed it was like, all right, I just adore aristocrats as a thing. Let's make it broken. So I, I got to make sure that it's like literally the best deck. That's what I want. I, I don't think you have to like necessarily aim at balance. I think you, you should try and make things that you want good, good. Sometimes you might push that a little too far. You do need to tone back. Uh, again, for a lot of my cubes, if I felt like players were more often going to push for the aggro decks, I might actually pull back support a little bit, which which is ex very unintuitive, and maybe a bunch of people are going to yell at me calling me stupid on Twitter for this, I don't know, or more realistically, Reddit. That sounds like the community for it. And the, the reason I say that is, like, this idea of that wheel the goblin guide, like, there's enough people that I know are going to like be enticed by the, well, you know, if no one's doing it kind of thing. <laughs> and it right. also, by over-supporting those aggressive strategies, you end up with just naturally kind of pushing the curve a little bit lower for other decks too, both because they need to think about it and they're reminded during the draft that they need to think about it, but also because you end up putting cheaper cards in the deck. So I don't know if I answered the question. I think about balance, but I'm not, and I'm not trying to make something unbalanced, I'm trying to make it feel positive and have like a diverse amount of decks and strategies that you can. I love the advice, especially to a newer cube designer, to just take something you like and make it the best deck, like make it broken yeah. essentially. Because I think so many cube designers get 
caught up in the idea of balance and like, well, I can't make one deck too good. Then that deck will just win every single time. And realistically, draft is self-correcting, right? Like if you yep. just make the aristocrats deck busted, then presumably you have anywhere from two to three and a half aristocrats players at your table. And you can work through what that means for that cube and uh, and how other cards perform and you can balance it later. But it's I think it's so much easier as like goal setting and also more fun to just be like, no, let's make this deck I love really good as opposed to guessing what problems there are going to be and trying to pre-solve those problems, which I see a lot of cube designers doing. So is it safe to say then you sit down to draft your cubes most of the time you are not not trying to win, but like you know you could win if you did something different, but instead you are exploring a different strategy or doing something you find to be more fun or novel? Actually, so when I draft my own cubes, um, so there's there's a particular type of cube that I draft in a particular way, and it is either, it's a cube that I own or a cube that a friend of mine would own. Not like specific, meaning that if, if I know the designer of the cube really well, is a better way of phrasing that, which mm-hmm. is myself or when I'm drafting a friend's cube, my goal is... Uh, to very purposefully try and explore a thing that we don't know much about, right? Something that is new, uh, a novel interaction that hasn't been necessarily explored too much. I I will try and do the weirder things, not even because I necessarily enjoy piloting the weirder decks or stuff like that, but to me, that that, uh, example that you gave, where like someone new can come to your cube group and just like draft a deck you didn't even know existed. For me, when I draft a cube of mine or a cube where I know the designer, my goal is to try and do that. So we've turned uh, over another rock in your cube experience, and the answer is even more emphatically you're forcing stuff. Yeah, yeah, but this is more like, uh, uh, th- this is the type of stuff that sometimes definitely doesn't work out. <laughs> right, so this is more less the forcing for you think it is optimal to commit because, you know, there's lower risk and actually very high reward. This is more exploratory forcing, which is kind of a different thing. Yeah, I, I want it, to, it's for the purpose of learning, not for the purpose of. And, and, and this was actually the last thing I want to touch on. So I, I concocted a beautiful segue that I steered you all down. The other thing I really loved about the episode was you talk about this difference in playing a retail limited set between exploring and exploiting and you're like early on in the format no one really knows what's going on you're exploring right you're willing to draft almost anything you're gonna like commit to a deck and see if it works and just try and like gather data right try and figure out how this environment ticks and then once you think you have your footing under you or you know the the meta of all the various podcasts and limited resources and articles and stuff are starting to solidify on like what the successful decks in the format are that's when you start to look for how you can exist within that ecosystem and exploit it in certain ways to maximize your own win percentage. I don't think I've ever approached a cube and felt like I was exploiting the draft. Maybe one of the only exceptions would be like early days of the turbo cube where like I had drafted it twice and most people hadn't drafted it at all. That's where I felt like, okay, I'm exploiting this. Like these dum-dums don't know they're not supposed to pass this card. I'm taking it. I'm building an unfair deck. They're taking creatures with power and toughness. It's a world of difference. So they're like a zero mana four or five. And you're like, uh, I'm taking paradoxal outcome. Yeah. Thank they're you like, very much. They're like, give me mere superior. And I'm like, mere superior can go suck a lemon. I'm taking, you know, whatever zero mana cycler is in this pack. Right. That's the closest I think I've ever been to feeling like, my approach to drafting an environment was exploitative. Instead, I always feel like I'm exploring, right? And my question for you is, I think this dichotomy makes total sense, right? Between exploratory drafting and exploitative drafting. If we coddle my insecurities of wanting to be a good magic player, 
is there a way to draft exploratorily all or most of the time and still know if you are getting better in the abstract? Oh, that's such a fantastic question. Wow. I was I didn't think that's where you were going. Cuz I um, cuz I I like the idea of like I'm drafting to learn, right? And I hope the more yeah. I learn about magic, the more I understand the game and the more I understand the game, the better a drafter I am for the next cube that comes down the pike, even if it's totally different than the cube I just played. But I also think it's so easy to trick yourself, give yourself wrong information, right? Like mm-hmm. walk away from a draft with the wrong experience, the wrong like conclusion, which is solved a little bit by playing a retail limited format because you can test your conclusion against the conclusions lots of other people have come to and you can go and test that hypothesis 12 more times by forcing that deck in, you know, in the same format over and over again. Whereas if you come out of a, our play group has like 30 cubes in it, right? So even ones that are like normal cubes in our play group, I might play them three or four times a year, right? If you come away from a draft like that, I think it's so hard to know if your conclusions were productive or if they were actually just kind of like a noise in the data, I guess. Yeah, it's... um a great question uh because you're right the normally the way that that gets solved is sample size right you you begin to form opinions and then over time if you stick to those opinions you're rewarded by winning more and you are a player that knows generally how good you are and so you can recognize if you feel like you're losing more than you should or winning more than you should you know, sometimes you're still going to make the wrong conclusions because it's a game because you know even the best players only win 60 five percent of the time or whatever in this game is your question like how would you or is your question like is it possible to because this isn't to me this question isn't actually about exploration versus exploitation and the, the reason it's not is because it's not like exploiting something is inherently good and exploring is inherently bad when it comes to like improving yourself as a magic player no i i agree uh, I, I think what we can say is that exploration i think you even said in the podcast episode is going to like tank your win rate right like you're not going to perform as well when you're in the exploratory stage because you're intentionally trying something you might not think is optimal because you want to see what happens but if you've found the exploit in the exploit stage i think you said you won 87 of your last 100 matches of amonkhet limited or something or last 100 games 86 it was close (laughs) so so like once you're in that stage you should be able to really pump your win rate in that era so like Obviously, if I'm looking at just me and the cubes I play, I do like, you know, two cube drafts a week or whatever. Win rate is kind of irrelevant because it could just be mana screw. It could be luck. I mean, there's just not enough data to ever look at win rate and care about that. So if I'm trying to draft exploratorily and also win rate is kind of hard to measure anything by, I don't know. I may just be asking an impossible question, which is like. It's not not an impossible question. It goes to, okay. Um, how good here's a here's a better question how good do you think you are at predicting the win rate of a deck so if you after you draft a deck you look at your deck and you could tell yourself given given what you know about this cube i think this is a 2-1 deck versus a 1-2 deck versus a 3-0 deck that is a really good example and i am embarrassed to say that i don't think i'm that good at it right we've joked in the podcast before that if you like your deck that's the First guaranteed step to, you know, one, two. If you think your deck is cool and fun, you're going to one, two for sure. <laughs> and if you think your deck is awful, then you're going to say it's bad and then feel bad when you beat everybody's face in, right? I mean, there could be this meta level of bias You're going to remember like, the ones where you exactly. were wrong. Right, 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 right. <laughs> That's actually, I, I I think I'm not great at it, to be honest, which... So to me, if I honestly, if I had to recommend anything. So one of the things that, uh, that I think is true, uh, when I think about... The different ways that separate, we're talking about retail limited now. Retail limited, but this is also kind of true for cube. 
um, retail limited, or just yeah, any limited. One of the things that I've noticed that I've noticed is the best players that I know are pretty good at this. They're pretty good at, and part of the reason they're pretty good at this is uh, one of the people feel like drafting is the really hard thing, but uh, you know, I find, for example, I think sealed and deck building just in in, in itself is more difficult than the draft portion. Obviously, like I've you know made my magic career on drafting, so I'm a little biased there myself. But part of it is like when you're exquisitely good at you know knowing how good a deck is by looking at the deck, you become you're naturally going to be better at making draft decisions to get a better deck and making deck building decisions to have a better deck, right? Because right. You if you know what a good deck looks like, it? right? You just think about like training some AA model. You have to know what a, what success looks like in order to draft towards success. Exactly. Um, the and maybe the, this answer is a bit of a catch twenty two. But I think that if you want to be able to identify, like, how do you know if you're seeing improvement, right? The, the answer is the, the way that this piggybacks on itself. One, you should be getting better at predicting how your deck is doing. I love this answer okay. so much. Okay. And two, once you're better at predicting how your deck is doing, then you can, then once you've done that, you can be pretty good at knowing when you're getting better at drafting itself too. Because you'll notice you're getting better decks at the end, whether or not you play them. This is a fantastic answer. I love this. I'm actually I'm going to start tracking that too. I've been tracking my cube games this year just because I wanted some semblance of like I don't know. I wanted to see if I could get better, and I feel like getting better. The first step is like actually knowing where you stand with regards to everything. Mm-hmm. So I started just tracking my games and my records and stuff. I love the idea of also just before I sit down and play anything after a draft, predicting, and then being able to graph how accurate my predictions are over time and see maybe that's a better measure of my actual improvement on my understanding of the game of Magic rather than looking at win rate or something, which has got so many other confounding factors. I feel like the other really practical thing you could do here, and again, like I feel like this is a really practical suggestion, is just look more closely at the decks that other people have drafted and just get mm-hmm. a sense of what the winning decks and also what the losing decks look like. Something we've been doing in our sort of local play group and our discords, we have a separate sort of discord forum thread channel for every cube in our group and people will post their deck lists. And that's just a lot of good information there. It's really uh, helpful. Know, yeah. Here's the win record and here's the yeah, cube and you can sure. start to put together. Uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of nuance into like, well, it's not necessarily just about this has the best cards, but it's like, oh, this had a density of removal that was really important, or this had answers to some other deck that is like the threat in here. So it does take that level of analysis, uh, but that's like the, the starting point, I think, that you could really use. No, I, I mean, I think I think that's great. And I think that there's a, there's a reason why, like, one of the things that people like the most about um, the Lords of Limited Discord, as an example, is like the first week of a format, you just get literally a data dump of like the fire hose hundreds of 3-0 lists or or whatever trophy list whatever you want to whatever you want from from both moto and arena and all of the different forms that you can play on arena the and you patterns start to emerge when you can look at that many things and one of the things that when, when i actually run my own cubes the most important thing to me is is twofold one uh I asked my players how it felt, not what their records were, but like, did anything feel great or feel bad? And of course, I ignore it when they say, you know, someone blowing up my land felt bad because I like land destruction, so I'm not going to cut it for my cube. But 
generally making sure that their experience felt good and then also just making sure that i look at all of the decks yeah i i ask people to send me pictures not everybody does but that's fine and because for me one of the things that i think i'm very good at is being able to look at a deck and understand is it good is it not what does it have going for it what does it not what would it need and that last one for me as a designer is really important because if i can look at the decks that were like one two or even the two ones where the 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 person's answer was like they felt like something was missing that's that's actually a really common thing and sometimes they don't know what they're like you know i thought my thing was good and my deck is good it seems good but it just you know something wasn't there the the most valuable information i i get from that is actually like thinking about the cards to add that would that would have elevated that deck yeah, and that's as a designer, but then also thinking about the cards that you as a player would have drafted differently in that seat to maybe give it yep. more success as a way to inform your further development as a player. Right. And, you know, as much as I have, you know, a minor existential crisis around only playing cube and playing a new cube every single week pretty much and not knowing if I'm actually getting better at this thing I invest all of my time into, even though I have that going on, this is also why I love Cube. You know, no, no disrespect to anybody that's a you know devoted limited grinder, but like, I am not anywhere near as interested in being good at the game in that way. And the fact that we have limited data, right? The fact that we have to talk about things from an abstract theoretical perspective—that's the way I want to talk about Magic, right? That's why I love this format so much. Because yeah, you can't just you know flop a seventeen lands database on my desk and say actually you're wrong. This is actually the better thing over here, and you're just you know over here doing some sampling bias or whatever. We have to like work through that with human communication and the power of ideas. Yeah, yeah. Although, I mean, I could spend a whole lot of time talking about the the issues that I have with the way that people interpret the data. Like, I oh for yeah, example, people love to just find an answer, right? They don't love to be told that the data is complex and nuanced. Yeah, yeah. Because there's a lot of you know, I I used to spend a lot of time with the seventeen lands data myself, and it, I mean, it's it's a I believe it's a wonderful thing. I am actually very, very positive. I think it actually is a positive thing for limited. And I think personally, I think it, uh, I think it would make engaging with the community about cubes significantly worse. But I think it would make our knowledge and our actually ability to talk about this theoretical stuff better if we could ground it in some more um, rigor. Yeah, I have feelings there. But but my, <laughs> okay. my main thought is it was inevitable. It was going to happen. And, right. you know, it's, it's data that's available. So obviously, if you're playing limited, you should take advantage of it if you care about winning. All right. So, so to wrap up here, to put a little bow on this, Ryan, you have at least one cube at KubeCon. Do you have one or multiple cubes that are going to be at KubeCon this year? One cube. One cube. It's the build around cube, correct? That is correct. Maybe it's a nice way to summarize all of this conversation. Are you planning on providing any primer materials for, for players that will inevitably ask you, hey, I'm going to play your build around cube at KubeCon. How do I be successful? Are you going to provide anything, article, tweet, thread? Are you going to give people something? And if so, what do you think you want to give them to help inform their play? Uh, okay. Or do you not want so, to give them anything and say, screw you, figure no, no, it out yourself? Is, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Do you... So have I described to either of you much about this cube and my goals in designing it before? I, I think you described it to me as you wanted to design the environment that if eight copies of you sat down, it would be the hardest cube you could possibly make. <laughs> that's, that's about, that's, that's about right. Yeah. I've been following along I, with the cube. I'm not sure if you talked about it in person, but I've been following along with it on cube Cobra and on Twitter. So I, I know the cubes shtick. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, 
It's a hard one to draft, and I've, I've actually been racking my brain on whether or not I want to make changes that would make it easier to draft for KubeCon or not, because I feel like that's giving up a little bit about the way and the reason I designed it the way that it is. But I do think that as it currently stands, it's a, I'm actually really, really happy and proud of it. But I think that uh, people, for the whole reason that we had this conversation, right, people aren't used to train wrecking at all or even having that be a risk in cube draft. And I legitimately think for a lot of people, if they don't know much about the list, it's a real risk in the way that this cube works. So I probably will write a little bit more of a detailed primer about it. But two, if I had to give people any advice and push for it, what I would what I would actually try and tell you to do is, instead of thinking what a card being in the cube means, right? Instead of thinking, oh, there's this, which means there's that. So you don't. I think it would benefit you to look at the cards. Don't think about the other cards that would go with them, but just assume that everything that you see is well supported. And try and make, if you see something that seems like it would be powerful to make work, try and make it work. With the one caveat that a backup plan is probably a good idea to have. Commit to the yeah. bit, but also have another bit ready to go. <laughs> yeah, because the there's a lot of there's a lot of crazy stuff. But I mean, the answer I, I will say I do think that if you want to win, if you want to win the pot of, of that cubic cubecom for literally exactly what I said before, and you want to not actually experience the cube the way that it was, you know, designed for, I, I think that going for like a modular white aggro deck is probably going to be the most consistent and reliable winner there. but as you're doing because, that know right. that you're not doing what ryan wants you to do you're a bad <laughs> bad person but also now everybody's listening to this and they're going to try and do that but that means you can exploit the fact that a bunch of people are going to mm-hmm. be trying to draft yeah i, so, I did see a picture uh, of a deck you posted yeah. that had phyrexian dreadnought in it a, a beloved card of mine and i saw dress down mm-hmm. and i'm like all right cool you got the dress down phyrexia dreadnought combo and i was looking through the deck and i'm like is that the only use for dreadnought here and then i noticed Valrol's the scar striped and i, I was, was like i no. always joke about that card. and i was like no that's not the only use for dreadnought you can also just scavenge it away to Valrol's or Valrol's or however it's pronounced oh, yeah. so yeah I that cube goes pretty deep by doing that yeah there's there's <laughs> there's a lot of and that's why it's like one of those things where like it's pretty clear like being more than just surface level familiar with the list opens up like a wild amount of doors, which is why, I mean, as, as I said, I designed it for myself. And when I draft that cube, I have the most fun out of any drafts I've ever had cubing before. And that's, I mean, that's why I built it. <laughs> so I don't think you should change it and make it easier to draft. I think it's all about branding and expectations. You just got to call it the train wreck cube. And then anybody <laughs> that doesn't train wreck will be pleasantly surprised and everyone else will have expectations uh-huh. perfectly met. It's uh, a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan, this has been great. Thank you for coming on. Once again, you're one of our favorite guests, and you are welcome back anytime. Maybe we'll have you back sometime to discuss the uh, Cube Cobra draft bots, something we've talked about maybe. That could be kind of fun. I know you're not doing a lot of content these days. Is there any way you want to point people to? I mean, we've got your Twitter, obviously, which we'll put in the show notes, but anything else you want people to be aware of? No, I think uh, I'm, I'm pretty interactive on, on Twitter. Um, there are other t- people have messaged me through other mediums, but I'm like very much not responsive through most of the other ones. So I would say I'm pretty active on Twitter uh, and I'm you know, my DMs are open. If anyone wants to chat about anything, I'm usually pretty open to it. I will remind people 
I am extremely busy, but I also don't mind if you ping me literally 15 times. I'll wow. Respond eventually. Like it doesn't, it doesn't bother me because I, I don't know, just it, being pinged a million times has never bothered me. So, I mean, in some ways like, I can see that being freeing because you're basically giving yourself permission to never respond if you don't want to, because mm-hmm. you gave people permission to ping you as many times as they wanted. But also, I think it's kind of a wild thing to say. So (laughs) I I hope that doesn't backfire for you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I, I could imagine that um, it doesn't. And it probably won't be necessary. Yeah. People are uh, genuine. Our listeners are genuinely uh, very nice and thoughtful and respectful. (laughs) And nobody listening is going to prove me wrong. Right, listeners? Nobody's going to prove me wrong. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. Thanks again, Ryan, for joining us. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. This show is produced by Ryan, thinking really hard about magic cards, writing multiple articles and doing other podcasts about it, and then us dragging him on to tie it to Cube. Thanks, Ryan. Anytime. We will ping you about the next episode (laughs) many, many, many times. (laughs) Fifteen times you will be asked to come back on Lucky Paper Radio. It's going to happen. (laughs) Hi, everyone. Before you turn off the episode, I'm just sliding in here in the editing booth to let you know that we do have our new surveys out for the new Lord of the Rings sets. That's the Lord of the Rings, Tales of Middle-Earth, and Tales of Middle-Earth Commander. Those cube surveys are out. We didn't know that was going to be the case when we recorded this episode, but it is now. So lots of exciting cards in this set, I think. If you haven't taken a peek at it yet, I encourage you to. And then let us know what cards you are going to be trying out in your cubes from the new sets. We'll be coming at you in a few weeks with our various set review episodes, and we want to have your opinion included. We care what you think. Don't say we don't care. You can never say we don't care. And one final tiny note, we have used Reddit since this show's inception as a main means of finding new listeners and getting word out about the show, and this is an episode we're really excited about with Ryan. I think it was a great episode, but... Because of Reddit's ridiculous changes to their third-party API services, many subreddits, including a lot of the magic subreddits we frequently post to, are going dark the day this episode comes out as a protest to these ridiculous new API pricing models. I also, frankly, am not going to be posting the show on Reddit the day it comes out because uh, I also use the third-party app that they are effectively shutting down. So I try not to bother you and bug you with requests, but if you would be willing to share this episode with a friend, post it in your local playgroups Discord or Facebook page or group text message, share it with somebody you know that you think might like it and uh, help us get the word out about the show. We really appreciate it. All right, that's it. No more uh, no more stuff. Uh, goodbye. Have a good one.